Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Uh, really interesting show today. Yeah. Something a little bit different. Yeah. People might, might like it, might dislike track. it. This but was your idea. I like this This one. was my idea because uh, this is these are some, some content creators who I stumbled across a while ago and I uh, was very intrigued by. I was very intrigued by because, you know, usually YouTube, in our political sphere, it's very clear where everybody stands and, you know, you have your camps. Um, for this section of YouTube, it's not it's not like the political world, and they sort of dabble just a little bit. They're relatively apolitical, but every now and then they dabble in politics on mm -hmm. the Charlie and Ben podcast. But, um, you know, they're interesting, they're honest, and then for the thing, they actually do the charisma on command thing. They predicted Trump's victory. They predicted Biden's victory. Um, they're... Just so even based though they're not like just based, personality yeah, traits. personality traits and characteristics and so these I mean honestly I just think they're charisma experts they're um you know they know what makes people interesting and attractive and endearing and they can break it down in in terms that everybody can understand and that's sort of what you know attracted me to them is like oh these guys are offering something that I haven't heard from anybody else and so it's always they always make me think yeah. You know, sometimes I watch them. I might not agree with the point or whatever, but I'll be like, hmm, that was interesting. Yeah, I, like I mean, that. everybody is familiar with that sensation you get when you're around someone or you see someone on TV or whatever, and you're just like, oh, I love that person. That person is awesome, you know? But you don't always take the step to be like, why did I have that reaction? What is it about that person that really made me want to be around them or want to consume more of their content, et cetera? These guys spend thousands of hours thinking about that exact question. Like, what is it? that pe certain people have that is magnetic, that draws other people to them. And, um, you know, whether you're an introvert or extrovert or anywhere, you know, in the sort of like personality range spectrum, um, they feel like with some basic tips, you can enhance your own magnetism and charisma, can help you understand what, what it is about other people around you or famous people that maybe is is landing in a compelling way. So... They're experts on charisma. They're also, in certain ways, experts on sort of like human beings and the way we relate to each other, because that's really what charisma is. It's like, what is causing these other human beings to respond to this one human being in that way? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. I just like how they can logically explain it. You know, yeah, they break it down. In a way that I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, so mm -hmm. really interesting, guys. Really looking forward to it. But first, um, I want you to tell me a little bit about this yes. uh, pathetic climate change failure among the media from the media this is according to media matters so i know you and i both covered the ipcc um, climate change report it's from a u.n panel that basically said um things are worse than we thought that some of the changes are already irreversible this was called uh i think they said it was a red alert for humanity was the language that was used this was the most comprehensive study to date of what has already happened to our climate, what the impacts have already been, what they're going to continue to be in the future, regardless of what we do now, and maps out these different potential scenarios, depending on whether or not we act and what the devastation would look like. Kind of important, um, incredibly important, especially given that, you know, we're already so far down the road where we should have acted decades ago that even by taking relatively dramatic action now, you're still going to have a lot of the extreme weather events that we're experiencing right now. Those are still going to continue for 30 years. Um, things like the uh, glaciers melting and some of those impacts will continue for another 100 to 200 years. So 
really, really dire, really important, incredibly significant. So first of all, they found that national TV news did cover it to start with, with a number of segments, 137 minutes of coverage on day one after this report is released. Drops down to five minutes of coverage by the time you get to day three. Oh, my God. So they spent one day being like, this is important, I guess, to cover their bases. And then it was memory hold. And that was it. But the most recent report from Media Matters is that as we've continued to experience droughts, hurricanes, flooding, wildfires, all of these extreme events, which scientists link directly to the climate crisis, very, very little of the coverage is connecting any of that to climate change or connecting it to what was said in this IPCC report. So here is the data. Just one-fifth of broadcast TV news segments on extreme weather mentioned climate change at all. Only two mentioned the IPCC report. Um, they found that they broadcast and cable TV news shows did cover these disasters quite extensively. They aired a combined 95 segments and 113 weather reports on all of these events from August 11th through August 18th. And while over 30% of these segments at least mentioned climate change, only 12 of them mentioned the IPCC report at all. And 100% of the weather reports completely omitted climate change from their coverage. So this report, which again was truly a landmark study, a sort of consensus study um, with the best possible data, the clearest possible look we have gotten to date, is instantly dropped and memory hold out of any sort of national news coverage. Well, I mean, this speaks to their broad failure. Um, this reminds me of the thing we learned from, I think the name of the outlet was Responsible Statecraft, mm. where they looked into the Afghanistan coverage. For all of the evening news in the entire year of 2020, it, Afghanistan got five minutes of coverage. Now, you could look at that and say, well, come on, Kyle, that's the year of um, COVID. So what are you going to do? Like that took up all the air in the room. And it's like, OK, but there's a lot of time in the day. And the nightly news is where most Americans get their news from. So it should have been more than five minutes. But let's say I grant people that point. The preceding five years. It was 24 minutes on average every year. That includes the year that had the highest civilian casualty rate for the entire two-decade war. Wow. They just didn't cover it. They just didn't care. So this is the kind of media that we're dealing with. The existential crisis of our time, obviously, is climate change. We needed to act the day before yesterday, the year before last year, the decade before this decade. Yeah. We haven't acted. And... Um, they're dragging their feet. They're not educating the American people the proper way. They're not really portraying to everybody just how disastrous the situation is. That has consequences. Well, I'll tell you a little anecdote from my own personal experience. When I was at MSNBC, I was told in no uncertain terms that climate change does not rate, does not garner ratings. And um, so that meant, like, eh, we might cover it occasionally. But that was seen as, as there was a cost to that. Right. You weren't going to bring an audience with that. It was considered like forcing them to eat their vegetables. And so we're just not going to talk about it all that often or all that much, even though this is clearly one of the most profoundly important stories and events that is transpiring um, in our lifetime. So uh, I think that's where a lot of the mindset comes from. Rather than thinking, 
your job in the media and something I know we both think a lot about is how do you take a story that uh, is important but may not naturally be, you know, an Epstein level clickability and make it so that people care about it, make it so people want to watch it and want to think about it and draw people in. That's what they should be really doing if they actually care about their job in informing the public is like, this story is objectively extremely important. How can we frame it so that people actually care? And when you have extreme weather event after extreme weather event after extreme weather event, where obviously people are deeply concerned and deeply care about what's happening there, well, then you have a natural way to introduce these concepts and introduce the facts and the reality of what this report says and bring it to your audience and educate them on it. Things that matter are inherently important and inherently interesting. And the fact that these people don't give it the coverage that it deserves just means they're not good at their job. They shouldn't be in the position that they're in. But unfortunately, yeah. the way the system works and the way the incentives are lined up, the whole reason they are in the positions that they're in is because they don't rock the boat. They don't focus too much on the things that matter that would really upend the system if we address them. Because the last thing that these major news corporations want is to upend the system because yeah, they, they want, do phenomenally they well in the system. they like ExxonMobil ads in the commercial breaks or any of that. And if it's at all challenging to them to make something interesting to the audience or compel the audience, get them to, to come in and watch, they just move over it. Of course, they're doing a terrible job getting people to watch any of their stuff anyway. Now that Right. Yeah. All the conventional wisdom humping gets them nowhere in the ratings. At least if they cover things that matter, I actually think the ratings would go up, even though they think the opposite. There's, all their instincts are wrong. But that's again, that's why they were hired for these positions is because their instincts yeah. are wrong. I will say that I do think that there is something in human nature that makes climate change challenging uh, for people to galvanize. Yeah, frog and boiling water. The will. Frog the, and boiling water. To that's deal it with is. it. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it what it is. If this was all happening at once and we could see it and it was being done by some one malevolent force, you know, we would marshal the troops. We would we would actually have that World War II mobilization that people love to th throw that terminology out and then don't do anything approaching that. If you had that sort of like, this is coming and it's hitting right now at this time, but it is the frog in the boiling pot of water where, and then you, you couple that with a media that doesn't have an interest in helping to make people feel that sense of urgency and you end up exactly where we are right now. Totally, totally. Um, so the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is it looks like among the left flank of Congress, they're staking some positions mm -hmm. that perhaps, you know, in the year 1998, if they said this, People would have been like, oh, my goodness, look how far left you've gone. But I like it. So anyway, Cori Bush said, and this was a little while ago, she said, America's billionaires are now worth $4.8 trillion after gaining $1.8 during the pandemic. Their wealth has increased 62% during a crisis that has millions of regular everyday people facing eviction or unable to pay their bills. Then she says, abolish billionaires. Yes. Tax the rich. Yes. So you think we should abolish billionaires? Yeah, absolutely. No one needs that amount of money. And you see the way that it not only corrupts our political system, that part is obvious, but it corrupts things around the world. I mean, I always use the example of Bill Gates, right? With all of his billions, he's basically taken control of public health. And it's had oftentimes disastrous outcomes, including right now with coronavirus and the way that he 
has been so influential in limiting vaccine production so that you have so many countries around the world that still don't have access to the coronavirus vaccine. Also, I mean, I really do believe this adage about show me the billionaire whose wealth was not created on some kind of a crime, right? I mean, Jeff Bezos, his exploitation of workers is horrific. I mean, it is criminal. It should be criminal. Bill Gates, he got rich through um, monopolies and patent protection. I mean, this guy used to be a villain, has had a phenomenal PR team sort of rehab him into some sort of like liberal billionaire superhero in the public's eye, or at least in some corners of the public's eye. So um, it's tr tremendously damaging to uh, civil society to have that level of inequality of haves and have nots. It means that people feel like they can exempt themselves from all of society's problems. That's why so many of them are like going out into space right now, building rockets and going to the space. So yeah, I'm, I'm for it. I'm trying to think of a way to play devil's advocate and I'm having trouble, but I'm trying to think of the things that most people would say. So, all right, one of the things people would say is, well, it's not really workable because most of the people who are billionaires, most of their wealth is actually in the company that they own or whatever. It's not actually in cash. So what do you do? You liquidate all their property or their or their company and have the government own stocks in it instead of them owning stocks in it? Like how exactly would it be workable, I guess, would be the first mm. counter argument. Well, these are the questions like this is what makes a wealth tax complicated to implement right is because of exactly those questions but i'm confident we could figure out a way let me think of other things people <laughs> would say people would say you can at least have that as the end goal even if there are practical considerations that make it challenging to implement so people would say well what about in incentive incentives for people you can't incentivize what would make that person decide to do anything further if they hit that billion dollar cap for their net worth and then what well, they get up for the next day. Like what? That's ridiculous. I know. I'm trying hard here. I'm trying <laughs> you know, so ridiculous. hard to make I mean, these that, counter arguments. That I, but I'm glad you brought it up because that is something that people say is like, oh, you need that incentive to get people yeah, to if, work as hard. As if a billion is not incentive right, or 999 million, like, 999,099. Right. right. And I mean, once you are a billionaire, you're never going to spend all the no money. No way. You just can't. You so just can't it's do it. It actually is something that has always been strange to me is why are you so motivated to keep making so much money. You I know? think it's and, a game for a lot of them. And I, yeah. I think that's what it it's is. It's a very, too. and I'm not even putting a value judgment on this, but it's very psychopathic mindset. It's, this is, yeah, I'm, uh, it, I think it's the game mindset is exactly right. Mm. Where, you know, for us, the thing that gives us fulfillment, makes us feel good is like, you know, being able to think about these topics and bring them to an audience and all of that stuff. For them, it's like, just being able to accumulate more numbers. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because everybody, since we have a minimum wage, everybody seems to understand intuitively, like, that makes sense. You know, minimum wage, you, you have to pay people a certain amount. But why is the idea of a maximum net worth that much weirder? It's not. To say we need a minimum wage and a maximum net worth. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. You say, I'm maxed out. I hit it. And, and I'll, hey, listen, I'll be kind, I'll be fair. I don't agree that there shouldn't be billionaires. There should be billionaires, but you should only be allowed one billion. So that's the that's, that's the magic your, number. So once you get a billion and one dollars, you're done. But yeah, you can max out at a billion. Because the other thing is, you gonna adjust that for inflation or just keep? Sure, it I'll adjust right for inflation. I'll be a kind person. Uh, <laughs> but the other thing is, like, Jeff Bezos is gonna be a trillionaire at some point. 
And at that point, when he becomes a trillionaire, some people are going to be like, hey, I don't know if we should have trillionaires. And then the idiots are going to make the same argument, like, no. What, you need to have you need to incentivize them. To yeah. hard. They gotta, you right. can't be a trillionaire, like, then why serious? even bother? Well, we should only index the max net, uh, net wealth to inflation once the minimum wage is indexed yes. to inflation. Agreed. Which it is not right now. Agreed, so. yeah. But, uh, you know, a trillionaire, uh, that really is crazy. And that says, but I think the thing I read was by like 2036 or some shit, which is not that far in the future. No, it's not. Now, who knows how they made the calculation. Maybe it's off. But just the fact that we're even having the conversation now, because we do have over 100 billion. There's over 100 billionaire. Look, uh, even, um, I mean, even really far right-wing people realize that at a certain point, there is a certain level of inequality that is just bad for civil and, society. And the point is, you alluded to this before, but there's something, has a quote to that effect. there's something about extreme wealth that inherently corrupts democratic processes. Mm -hmm. Because when you amass so much, you could just buy the system and then yeah. rig it further in your favor. And once you get to that point, the whole game is up. That's it. We're, we're done here. Wrap it up. I've got another uh, another argument against it for Go you. For you it. can You can take a stab at this one. This is class warfare. Yes, Why and I like it. Why can't we all just come together? No, I like class <laughs> warfare. Let's, I, I like it when the working well, class wages it on the wealthy. The other That's thing right. is mm. there's cl constant class warfare. Yeah, all it the time. It just goes unnamed, and it's against working class people and the poor. So I don't yeah. mind and a, little, by the way, a little bit of reverse class warfare. And by the way, the demands of the working class have never been unreasonable. Like, every one of the demands makes sense. Like, like oh, let's have health care and a living wage. Maybe an and, education. Yeah. And I want, like, maybe a couple weeks paid vacation. Oh, class warfare. Oh, call it whatever you want. Those things are right. good. And I like those way, things. Y'all should at least pay as much in taxes as we do. That's another one Not, of the... I, they should pay way more. Common demand, um, but yes. The final thing I wanted to say in this story is just to remind everybody how bad it's gotten. Um, there was a Rand Corporation report that came out a little while ago. I believe it was in 2018. The top 1% of Americans... I'm reading from Time Magazine now, citing the Rand report. Mm -hmm. um, the top 1% of Americans have taken $50 trillion from the bottom 90%. $50 trillion. And so they go on to explain that if you just keep the ratio uh, the same as it was post-World War II, actually not even the early 1970s, then the bottom 90% would have $50 trillion more today. And so that works out to $1,144 more for every American every month for their entire life. Wow. That's how much the system has been rigged wow. against regular people. That's how much it's been rigged. And, you know, it's happened in a variety of different ways. Corruption, rigging it in favor of the wealthy, outsourcing the jobs, you name it. Destruction of unions, all that. Yeah. So this is, just, again, this is just if you keep the pay ratio the same as it was back then, the bottom 90% would be $50 trillion more richer. I remember I did um, a segment on Breaking Points about uh, there was this viral video of this guy shoplifting in California at a Walgreens. He just like was just like brazenly on his bicycle grabbing stuff on the shelves and security guard was just recording it and he later was arrested so it's not like he even got away with it but this was like a right wing outrage thing and um, it might have even been Media Matters that we referenced before that wrote this up and was like you know the same time that there were probably hundreds of articles written up about this one dude stealing some stuff from Walgreens. Walgreens had to come to a multi-million dollar settlement. Wage theft. Over theft. wage yeah. theft. Mm -hmm. And that got no coverage. Okay? No coverage. And it's not just Walgreens. Wage theft is incredibly, incredibly common. 
from large corporations across the country. But that gets next to next to no attention whatsoever in the media. Quoting from the Economic Policy Institute right now from 2014, wage theft is a much bigger problem than other forms of theft. Correct. So there's more money that's stolen from employers of employees than there is people just stealing Stop stuff. Lifting. Because And why doesn't the media cover it? Well, first of all, you have this video. It's sensational. It's salacious, all that stuff. But also, it's so easy for them to punch down, right? guy is completely powerless he's probably in prison at this point um meanwhile you know if you're punching up at a large corporation at amazon at walgreens at big pharma whatever it is oh then you got to worry about they're going to come after us with lawyers you got to worry about they're going to drop their ad rates you got to worry about oh i might see one of their uh, one of their executives at my next cocktail party and they're part of your social circle so that's part of why you see that dynamic play out by the way, in the same vein, because you just reminded me of this by bringing up the wage theft thing, mm-hmm. it's also the case that uh, civil asset forfeiture uh, steals more from people than burglars do. Wow. So in other words, police officers wow. legally rob people right. more than robbers rob people. Wow. Again, when you learn the facts about That's incredible. how the system works, it is absolutely astonishing. Five billion. So uh, this is from the Washington Post. Um, the Treasury and Justice Departments deposited more than $5 billion into their respective asset forfeiture funds. That same year, the FBI reports that burglary losses topped out at $3.5 billion. Yeah. So civil asset forfeiture, for those of you who don't know, is a police officer can pull you over. If they suspect that you're in the process of committing a crime, they could just say, I'm taking the cash that's shit. on you. I'm mm-hmm. taking your vehicle. I'm impounding it. And by the way, there's no process to get it back. Yep. And so they do that, and it happens relatively often. And uh, people don't know how to get their property back or their money back. And that's it. It's over. It sort of flips the burden of proof in the, with the way our system is supposed to work. And it's guilty until proven innocent. Uh, so there's more of that going on than burglars actually robbing, stealing from you. So there you go. Extreme <laughs> wealth in this country is almost definitionally built on um, exploitation. exploitation. Sure. Mm-hmm. So that alone, I think, is argument enough to eliminate all the billionaires. Indeed. And on that note, <laughs> um, <laughs> so now we're going to pivot to much, much less political. Uh, really like these guys. Charlie and Ben are phenomenal. They do charisma on command. Um, really looking forward to this conversation. Enjoy. All right. I'm really excited to welcome Charlie and Ben to uh, Crystal Kyle and Friends. Guys, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. There's so much stuff uh, that I want to ask you because I've been consuming your content for a while and I'm a bit of a fan. So... The first thing I want to ask is actually, well, actually, you made a good point earlier. I'll bring that up first. Um, you guys are some of the f- very few who accurately predicted a Donald Trump victory. Mm. And so either one of you, just talk a little bit about that, because uh, you're not even really all that political. You're relatively apolitical, but because you're, mm. I would call you, correct me if I'm wrong here, like charisma experts and like psychology experts. How were you able to predict that victory? Yeah, so it, oh gosh, I'm remembering back. People were telling me around December of, I suppose, 2015 to do a breakdown like we do of some of the athletes and actors that we've done on Donald Trump. And I was very resistant. I grew up in a Democrat leaning household and had a, just a bad taste in my mouth about him. But as he continued to, to gain steam in the polls and all that kind of stuff, I decided to take a look into him. And so when I started watching his debates, I saw him. Uh, have such a method to his madness (laughs) and in what looked like chaos 
I saw the audience respond. There was that Rosie O'Donnell moment early in the campaign where uh, they tried to get him with that gotcha question, and he completely flipped it on Megyn Kelly and had the entire audience in an uproar. And I watched like schoolyard tactics of how to win a crowd just get employed masterfully. Uh, so in watching his debates, I saw that he was not trying to win the election in the Republican primaries. He was trying to knock out the top Republican competitors one by one by one. And so people were saying he's not going to win. He could never win like this. This is not going to play to the general audience. And as soon as he became the Republican candidate, his campaign shifted and he started doing the same thing to Hillary. So I made that prediction early in, uh, I started feeling it around January, February. I think we announced it in March, but I did, I was one of the people who believed the polls at the end when they said Hillary was 95% likely to win. I went into an election night thinking that, that I was wrong. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd, Illegally, I found out later, placed money on this bet. <laughs> Apparently, you're not supposed to bet not, on U.S. presidential elections. Yes, but I found an Australian bookie do, who would take it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, <laughs> there's this whole, bookie. like, markets of prediction markets for politics now. Oh, but it wasn't yeah. – you didn't just see – you saw Trump's charisma and how he was really effectively winning over the crowd, knocking off his competitors in this sort of – you described as, like, schoolyard bully tactics, but very effective – but you also kind of uh, pegged Hillary's anti-charisma. <laughs> yeah. so talk about yes. that part as well. Yeah, uh, so it's, it's been a while. But what I remember seeing in her and is that she thought that she could ride on the woman card uh, and, and just skate that into election. And I remember a couple of things that she was doing that were just Donald Trump had crooked Hillary. He had these very catchy labels that he was throwing onto people. And he was testing these out. I didn't spot this first. Scott Adams saw it. He saw that he was sort of A-B testing insults and seeing how crowds reacted much like a stand-up comic would. Uh, so I saw him doing that. And she then copied him so poorly. She called him at one point presumptuous Donald, which is the least <laughs> effective <laughs> insult. <laughs> uh, and, and I saw her just continually miss the mark on the things that were, you know, she tried to label herself, I remember, an outsider, which was oh. just so, it was something that was, was so difficult to believe for someone who had literally lived in the White House for eight years, to, to label herself an outsider. Uh, and so the role that she tried to play, the role that she tried to portray him as were just so unbelievable that I think she took what should have been a sure thing for her and shot herself in the foot and lost the election. Yeah, she, yeah I think that... she also was um, kind of to the to the outsider point, like not creating her own strengths or reasons to vote for her. She went very much on the I'm not Trump, because I remember at one point you pulled up her website. You said, look at this website. Yeah. And it said, love Trump's hate over and over and over and over. And you said one third of this website is Trump's name. Yeah. And like, I get that she thinks this is clever, but it is, you go to her site and think of him, mm -hmm. you know? Right. And so I think she, I think she thought if she could just position herself as not him, that would be enough. And I think, I remember at the time you saying she wasn't doing enough to say why she was good. She wasn't talking about how eight years in the white house had mm -hmm. equipped her to be a good president. She was just talking about how she wasn't Donald Trump and it just wasn't enough to get people excited to show up and vote for her. You're exactly. actually, you're actually seeing shades of that now in the California recall election with Gavin Newsom, where everything is yep. up there that's like, don't let Republicans win. Not them. <laughs> not them. It's nothing like, here's my thing. It's just like, not not them. Like, not them. Listen, we understand yeah. that you really don't like me and I look like a vampire. But <laughs> I promise you, the other ones are way worse, um, is effectively the, the pitch and, there. And to your anti-charisma Hillary point, the thing that stuck with me, and I still have nightmares of it, is when she was in the debate and said, 
he does trumped up trickle down economics. <laughs> it was like her and two staffers thought it was clever and nobody else in the world thought it was clever. But you made a good point in the video because you said there are arguments for insiders. You could say I have more experience. I was there when Osama bin Laden was killed. Like you could say all these things, but she didn't. She fought the battles on his turf. And that was the ultimate yeah, mistake. She's like, I'm an outsider because I'm a woman. So vote mm -hmm. for me. That's quite literally what she yeah, argued. Yeah, that was that was her pitch. Didn't work out. Yeah. So, did you yeah. guys? Did you do one for uh, Biden versus Trump this time around? We did. We did. Uh, I. I. I mean, I'm not a. I got two. I got Biden and I got Trump. That doesn't make me especially good at this. But I was. Uh, I watched the debate and I waited till after the debate to do it. And I thought that Joe Biden handled himself competently. The the worst thing that he could have done was look dead. I thought that was the, his biggest weakness. Was <laughs> I thought he was failed his. on that front. He looks dead. <laughs> you, you know, I thought I, I thought he looked cogent and together uh, more than I'd anticipated that he would. And I thought that was his biggest hole. Uh, and that was after seeing that, I said, OK, I think, you know, Trump is behind here. Biden kind of has to lose this in the way that Hillary lost this. But you you made a great point that I that I'd forgotten to mention that I just want to underscore is that Donald Trump throughout that entire run dictated the terms that he would compete on. He made this election about who is the most outsider and Hillary implicitly bought into that framing, which is may the best outsider win, which is like you're going to lose if you play this game, you know, play the game of like made the most competent person, the person with the fewest bankruptcies, the person with, you know, the, the best experience in this or the smartest. And she instead tried to be, I think, clever without really understanding why Trump's insults were working. She just copied the form as best she saw it. Um, but yeah, no, you're, I, I, I did get Biden this time, and uh, we'll see. I think next go around, uh, <laughs> hopefully I can go three for three. Three, for three. Well, actually, let me ask. That's one I wanted to ask you about is, you know, it's either – I think if Biden is able at all to run for president again, I think they will put him up Prop there. Yes, yeah, as the Wheel Democratic nominee again. That's my personal prediction. But there's a decent chance, just given the actuarial tables, that um, the Democrats are going to need a new nominee. Kamala Harris, obviously the vice president. She did very poorly, ultimately, in the Democratic primary. Right now, the polls say, you know, people don't really particularly love her as vice president. That's a little bit of an understatement. Have you had a chance to kind of look at her, get any sense of how people respond to to her public presence? I've not followed her closely. Uh, I so I don't have a strong opinion on her as of yet, and I and I don't want to blemish my record by <laughs> by making that's, a prediction that is this poorly founded. So I'm not I'm not certain. That's fair enough. So I want to. So this is one of the things I wanted to do with you guys. By the way, if you feel the same way about any of these figures, don't be ashamed to just be like, I sure. don't know that one well enough to answer. But for both of you, I want to go through this and I want to get both of your opinions. I'm going to name somebody and you tell me what exactly is their charm? What's their charisma? What's their appeal? Because okay. one of the things that I never used to think of, but you opened my eyes to is that, yeah, there are different kinds of charm and appeal. And like mm. some people make like I think Noam Chomsky makes monotone sound good, but he's the only person <laughs> on the planet who does that. So there's got to be something there. So um Let's start with an easy one, Obama. Oh boy, he was one of the greatest speakers. I still that I've that I've seen. I, I did a, a video on his. I think it was 2004 ish when he gave a speech as a senator to the DNC. And okay, so many things. His tone, his pacing. Uh, the he is so approachable in his demeanor. He has. Very few filler words, though he does have the uh that, that goes on, but it, it it draws you into the story as opposed to making you think that he doesn't know what he's saying. 
when I mention tone, specifically what I mean is that he is so comfortable controlling the pace of an interaction. I, as you can hear, I, I tend to rush sometimes and it can make my stories feel like, like you don't need to lean into them. But when Obama is talking, he baits you to fall deeper into his tone and, and that simple act of following how quickly he, or slowly rather, he often speaks, makes him mesmerizing to listen to. Uh, I, I remember listening to him speak and he also, just from a political perspective, managed to frame positively both sides of what has become this vicious divide where Democrats see these uh, dumb hick Republicans and Republicans see these elitist Democrats in, in cities. And he found a framing for each of those sides in that particular speech that was so flattering to both of them. And when you hear your side being described well by this guy, you go, I like this guy. And so when he says something else about the other side, you go, well, I kind of want to believe what he says because he's so he's so kind to me. Uh, mm. So there was a ton with him that was that was really, really good. What do you think, Ben? I have not done a breakdown <laughs> on Barack Obama. I think people are always surprised at how long those things take. It's, <laughs> it's actually not just a half hour video that I watch and then go, oh, I know everything about this guy. It's oh, I'm sure. about about a week of deep study. And so I haven't done that for Barack talk Obama. A, so talk a little bit about that. What is actually the process when you decide like we're going to break down why this person lands or what this person why this person doesn't land? What what do you do to gather that information? Yeah. So uh, YouTube is my home or was my home. Now Ben is making a lot of the videos. But the the key thing, I think, is is trying to maintain self-awareness to the moments when you fall in love with someone. And they tend to occur in discrete instances if you can pay close attention to it. So if you listen to somebody and, and also when you fall out of love with somebody, when somebody tells a joke that is biting or cutting at somebody else's expense, uh, you just trying to maintain an awareness of oh, that's the moment that I don't like this person. And I watch a bunch of videos, I find the moments where something in me shifts in terms of how I feel, and I rewatch them over and over yeah, and over again the part. until I can find the pattern. Uh, and usually after several days of watching this between disparate videos, you go, oh my gosh, the way that he tells his jokes has this particular setup, or they all tend in this particular direction, or the way that he receives praise is such that he receives some of it, but finds a way to quickly redirect to someone else that contributed to the project as well. Uh, so it's a lot it's a lot of watching self-awareness and, and pattern recognition for me. And I don't know if you have anything additional that you do. Yeah, for me, I think the thing that helps me the most is uh, taking you just write down all those moments where you feel something and then I write out what's happening and then I try to clump them loosely. So anytime there's something funny, I'll put them all together. And what you happen to see sometimes because I've written out the quotes is just how similar all the jokes are. Or for instance, with John Krasinski, I had the same story four times. It's yeah. like this guy has told the same story with the exact same <laughs> words in four different interviews. And so in the video, I literally have it switching back and forth between them. And that's where I get my point of these guys aren't making this up on the spot. In the case of John Krasinski, they have go-to stories. Stand-up comics are the same. You can too. But the lesson comes from me like really just starting by trying to take all the moments that I find somebody to be likable and clumping them into here's when he's funny, here's when he's endearing, here's when he's genuine. And uh, yeah, then it kind of just patterns come out of that. You start to see the same thing over and over and you go, oh, there's something to this that I could do or someone else could do that would make them likable. So what is the appeal of somebody who Crystal and I are fortunate enough to know, uh, who's number one podcast in the world, Joe Rogan? What oh, makes gosh. him the best? <laughs> no, we have like seven videos on him. He actually has a lot. 
Uh, I don't know. Do you want to start? If not, you, I'm happy to. I mean, he's, he is, I think, uh, the person that we've done the most time because yeah. there is really a lot. So I'll, no. I'll let you start. Yeah, he's he does something that most people struggle with, which is he is interesting to listen to and good at asking questions and listening. And most mm. people, charismatically, they, they fall into the one or two camps. So they'll ha they'll be incredible entertainers, but not necessarily people that are good at just listening and asking questions and maintaining good eye contact. And he can get his ego out of the way, listen to a story, even when he disagrees, bite his tongue, which leads to his guests getting to say incredibly interesting things, which makes him a good podcast host. And at the same time, there's clips of him standing up for himself in a way that people would normally feel very uncomfortable doing, which makes you respect him. Because I think a lot of times there's a feeling of respect anytime you see someone do something that you know you would be too afraid to do. And that can be giving a big speech, approaching someone that you're intimidated to approach, like a boss or someone attractive, or just standing up for themselves. And then he's a stand-up comic. So as much as people might say he's not the best stand-up comic, he is a funny, happy guy. He laughs very easily. He makes guests feel good because of how smiley and laughy he is. So I think he just happens to do a lot of things. And then this is a separate thing. He does. He likes MMA, psychedelics. Mm -hmm. uh, he knows a lot about fitness and he loves archaeology and science and he loves conspiracy theories. So he just happens to have a genuine interest in topics that people find interesting, whereas most people are more one note. So if you're a musician, you might be able to talk someone's ear off about music, but once they bring up sports, you kind of go blank. And he's happy to talk to you about whatever you like, whether it's evolutionary science, psychedelics, sports, anything, really. He's he's just someone who has a large breadth of topics that he finds fascinating, which means he can engage with a lot more people than the one-note interviewers can. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I think, and I think one of the things you said there is important too, like he's authentically interested in those topics. So he's not just like, picking things that he thinks other people are going to be interested in. Mm -hmm. He yeah. just happens to be interested in things that a lot of people are very interested in. And even with him, when he's going down a rabbit hole of something I'm not that into, he makes it compelling or he has people on that make the topic compelling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he's, I think he does a really good job of being the everyman, which means he can bring on, if Neil deGrasse Tyson goes on an interview with a PhD physicist as the interviewer, some of us might not track what's happening for very long because they'll get into the weeds. And what Joe can do is be genuinely interested in the topic, not know much about it. And so have a conversation that is interesting for other people to observe because podcasting is about being a good conversationalist, but it's also about being someone people like to watch having a conversation. And those are actually two different skills. Yeah. yeah. You guys mentioned, you guys mentioned his authenticity. And I think, I, I don't know him. Maybe you guys can speak to this, but having had the background both in combat sports and uh, stand-up comedy, those are two of the scariest things that a human being can can engage in, at least in, in America, you know, where, where things are relatively safe. And a lot of being a good conversationalist, or at least the authentic part of conversation, is about having courage. And so he is able to assertively, without aggressively, disagree with people. And he doesn't need to get in your face and be on top of you. But I remember, like, for instance, there's a Dave Rubin clip there. He's talking to him about building codes. And he assertively disagrees with him in that in that clip. And he is doesn't hide the fact that he strongly disagrees. He doesn't make it soft for him. But he also doesn't say I, I like that. This is uh, he doesn't shout him down, I suppose, is the answer. Whereas some people, when they they are either at a zero disagreement, totally compliant and friendly, or they snap and then they are all in your face. I think that the courage that he's probably developed from those activities spills over and is what makes him so authentic. And I think it's also what is 
felt threatening to some people about the Spotify deal is that that would that would go away that if he got mm. you know a ton of money. Um, and I have I've seen some of it. And I've seen uh, I've seen him at least continue to be authentic in, in what I've watched. We both know exactly what Dave Rubin clip you're talking about, <laughs> and probably everyone listening also does. And yeah, he doesn't have to get like yelly or use personal insults to absolutely own Rubin in that moment. Yeah, and then and then he just moves on too. It's not like he he ling- he like some people. It. Yeah, some people you know once there's the disagreement, it's like they'll linger on it, and it's just like you can feel the energy of it. But no, he'll like disagree, be on the record, and then it's like all right, let's talk about something else. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like a smooth transition. Um, so tell me why Russell Brand is charismatic. <laughs> He's one of my favorites. I'm, I have a man crush on, <laughs> on Russell Brand. He, so one of the interesting things about him is if Ben mentioned John Krasinski has a lot of the same stories. If you listen to people who do the talk show routes, they have the same stories and that they've learned to tell that have the same beats and they can become, uh, you realize they're not as spontaneous as you as you thought they were when you first watched them. Oh yeah, Bill Burr actually takes bits and performs them yeah. on interviews. And when he's going, you think he's having an organic rant, and you go, "Wow, wow. this guy is so yeah. funny and quick on his feet." And then you realize that he's actually taking a bit from his stand-up and monologuing it. And he is so funny. It's just, yeah, oh, he's, no, just he's hilarious. <laughs> I like Bill. I yeah, like yeah. Bill Burr, but it's it's it. He makes it seem like he's coming up with it on the spot purposefully. Yeah. That's part of his performance on talk shows. Sure. So Russell, Russell is, uh, he's a, a joy for me to watch because he is, he's so spontaneous. And I'm, I, I truly think that he is a genius. Uh, there's a number of clips and one day I might do more of them where he monologues uh, and plays a character and invents things. His vocabulary is so precise and perfect. Uh, I'm sure that it's not perfect. It's very precise though. Yeah. He, in addition to that, is very because of his comedic background. Um, he's very unlikely to take questions literally. Like we're we're you know right on this. You ask me a question about Russell Brand, I mostly answer very literally. When he's presented with a uh, a question, he will find a way to play with the words in a way that upsets expectations. And that's a complicated way of saying that he's funny. That's that's really what jokes are: is when you surprise someone with the way that you respond in a given situation in a way that is pleasant and not destructive. Uh, so he's extremely good at that. And then the other thing that, you know, back in his more uh, single days, he was he <laughs> was uh, if there's clips of him on YouTube where he has this comfortability with his sexuality that is uh, it's magnetic. I think that as a society, we tend to be very stuffy, very concerned. Rejection feels horrifying to so many people. And he was so comfortable being this strange, large haired, leather clad dude. <laughs> just exuding sexuality and it made him uh magnetic to to i think a lot of people i, I love you, him he's do you think he's more polarizing than a lot of others on the list though because i do mm-hmm. sort of get that sense from him what do you think yeah. yes yes and i think i do think that if people spent uh as much time as i had watching his videos he's, he's difficult to dislike but certainly as an avatar right when you look right. at the, the old russell brand with that big hair and the outlandishness it's it's off-putting at first and that's one of the things that can be difficult with charisma is that you know donald trump one of the best ways to get a lot of people to like you is to make sure that a lot of people dislike you it is to Mm. stand strongly in one particular camp it doesn't mean if a lot of people dislike you that a lot of people automatically (laughs) like you which i think can be easy to confuse but damn it (laughs) that was my strategy but why why is that because you do actually i mean this is this actually Um, helps me develop a theory on Kamala Harris because you do see this with a lot of politicians 
where they try to be liked by everybody. And then everybody hates them. And they end up being hated by everyone. I mean, Hillary Clinton, you could make, you know, the case that that was part of her problem, too. Well, I think the big thing that makes people love you, not just like you and say, oh, yeah, I like that guy as an acquaintance, but love you is when you stand for something. It's when you stand for an idea or an ideal that people find draws them in. And so when we were starting Charisma on Command, we were very loud about this concept that we had just discovered that was maybe you don't need a nine to five that you don't like. You can take a passion and turn it into a business and we're going to move to Brazil and start this company and quit our private equity and consulting jobs. And at the time, that made a lot of people think we were crazy. It pushed a lot of people away, but also it drew a lot of people to us who also felt dissatisfied with the rat race and the nine to five. And I think when you stand for something strongly, it draws people to you very intensely and also inherently pushes people away. And so I think a lot of times charismatic people like Trump or Russell Brand, that's what they do is they polarize and that is both the, the the magnet that draws them in is the magnet that pushes other people away. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that's interesting, you mentioned Trump and Russell Brand, you know, both incredibly charismatic in very different ways. And I think actually in one of your videos, you point out Russell has this really elaborate and sophisticated and precise and rich language that he uses just casually all the time. Trump does that. Trump is the total opposite, (laughs) right? Everything is monosyllabic, super punchy, third grade level at the highest. Sixth, technically, but point taken. Yeah, no. That's that's literal. That was in a study. But But, I said that's going to help him win. I made that point. She was an advanced third grader. That's okay. right. She's and benchmarking, third grader. She's benchmarking very to where smart. she was. Okay. <laughs> That's all. Um, but both seem to work in their own ways. So how can you have two people whose communication styles are so incredibly different, but both are able to communicate in their own way very, very effectively? Yeah. Uh, well, I think, you know, it was funny because when I did that video and I realized that both work, I spent a couple weeks trying to switch between those two modes about every hour. And so for an hour, I try to talk in single syllable words. And then for an hour, I try to be more precise with my language, which was, it was taxing. But (laughs) so uh, I I think that Russell would struggle in politics. I think that they're playing different games. Mm -hmm. Uh, Second grade level, when, when you are trying to broadly appeal to a nation of over 300 million people, you are generally better served to use language that is easily comprehensible, uh, especially if there's a fear that you could be perceived as, you know, as Donald Trump could have been given his background, elite, privileged, upper class person. Especially so, in the soundbite era of politics. Sure. And the and the other thing that is important to recognize that I think Trump does a very good job of doing is he is, though it has of course been done, he, because he is so circuitous with his language and he starts sentences without finishing them and and it has so much that is implied in what he's saying uh, you know it's they're doing a tremendous job they're doing trem- <laughs> and, and then he just kind of yeah what what that allows for is it makes it actually it's so tough to grab clips of him saying one short complete sentence that's upsetting because he's mm. he though he is chooses single syllable words even even the clip of charlottesville uh they they had to like jump around to grab the moment where he said the th- the great people thing because he he is so unlikely to finish any particular sentence. Uh, so the single syllable words I think helps him appeal to the broad base uh, that he needs to to win you know the majority of the or 
the majority of the, I guess, electoral college, not the, <laughs> not the American electorate. But uh, and and Russell would struggle there. I think Russell Russell is has got his own niche that is that is unlikely to let him win any elections anytime soon. So Crystal and I have had this conversation a number of times. Actually, you're reminding me of it with what you just said there. That there really does appear to be this like X factor characteristic or quality, and some people just have it and some people don't. And the quality is and russell has it and trump has it even though they're polar opposite ends of the spectrum but some people when they talk it just immediately lands and gets in your brain and you understand it and then there's other people where it's like a constant battle to try to force yourself to listen because your attention just like sort of starts roaming all over the place i don't know what the hell that is but they both definitely have it um and the point about trump is sort of it's somewhat similar to bernie in a way because I'm, i'll ask you your theory on uh what's Bernie's appeal, but I always thought it was like the authenticity, which you could argue Trump has. Um, and then he also has the same sort of Trumpian talking at a sixth grade level punchiness. Bernie has that with just a totally different political philosophy where he's punchy Medicare for all free college, $15 minimum wage, and just repeat that over and over and over. So there are, you know, there's there's charisma similarities between them, even though philosophically they're totally different, correct? Sure. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think Bernie's adapted actually in the most recent ten or so years. I, I remember watching him. I think the first go around with him up against Hillary the first time, or yes. when when Obama when Obama took it. Yeah, and he was not as punchy. It it was really actually, he was asked questions about will taxes go up on the middle class, and he's gives such a complete answer that is not easily digestible by the majority of the people in the audience. When they hear our tax is going to go up, what they want to hear is absolutely not. Right? Right. They don't yeah. want you to, mm -hmm. to explain, well, actually what's going to happen is because you have these bills, things are going to get cheaper for you overall. But yes, in the short term, and that's what he takes three minutes to say. And I think he's learned from those defeats to copy the parts of Trump that are actually going to be useful for him politically. And I think Hillary tried to copy the parts of Trump that were not useful to her. But those <laughs> those quick, punchy, uh, populist things that, that people get behind, yeah, that's, Bernie, that's how you want to talk politically. Bernie's definitely changed his style yeah. as each election comes. He, he's gotten better at coming up with something people can get behind mm -hmm. instead of going for a long, complete answer that's hard to follow if you don't know the U.S. tax code. Which is tough yeah. because, you know, you'd love to live in a world where the complete answer is, is, the, <laughs> one, is the one that, that people vote for. But uh, that is that is not the case, and, and that yeah. has made me sad. I think that's partly what uh, Elizabeth Warren's problem was, too. <laughs> you know, it was like everything's like a white paper, and I've got a plan for that. Well, like, that, and she also ran solely on I'm a woman. Yeah, yeah, she also leaned pretty hard into the woman card, as you, as you put it. Um, but, Ben, I was actually curious for you to pick up on the comment that Kyle made about how some people just have this X factor where you want to listen, you want to pay attention, you're super engaged, and some people have, like, an anti-X factor yeah. where your mind is instantly wandering and the information isn't soaking in. I mean, it seems to me what you guys are doing is trying to give everybody access to whatever that X factor is. Just talk a little bit about your philosophy and if you think that that is possible for everyone. Sure, yeah. People comment this sometimes. They go, "What? you can't give this away. If everyone knows this, it won't work. <laughs> and I just ha I, I haven't honestly have faith that the amount of people actually going out and implementing things that they watch is so small that even if I were scared of that, which I'm not, it just wouldn't happen. So I, I think that to answer your, your other question, everybody can become significantly more charismatic. I'm 100% confident on that. 
I have a cousin who's on the spectrum who I've seen transform from someone who had never had a date to was uh, very successfully dating and then got married. So I think no matter who you are, this stuff can transform your life. I do think that not everyone will be the rock, Barack Obama, Will Smith, but that's not what most people even want. Most people just want to have more friends, have a better dating life, get more respect at work, get the promotion and that stuff's all achievable. So it's kind of like wherever you are, you can make this huge leap. But mm. yes, in the same way that we we can't all be Steph Curry, we can't all be Michael Jordan, we also can't all be the absolute 0.001% of charismatic. But you don't need to be to massively transform your life. So that's kind of what we're trying to do is just get people the jump from where they are to where they want to be. Mm -hmm. I so, think part of the oh, – sorry. Well, I'm the, sorry. Uh, you, no, go ahead. Finish your thought. Just you'd mentioned this this X factor that people have. I think part of the good news is that it isn't just one thing. There's there's at least several different kinds of X factors that draw people in and make them want to listen to you. We've tried to identify some of them. Ones that we've left out that if you think about it, uh, the way that we've tried to understand charisma is it's basically anything that attracts people to your personality. But there's also other things that attract people to other people, like being extremely good looking or being extremely wealthy or, you know, having an advantage that you can hand to them. Status, Status power, yes. access. So in terms of personality, what we've what we have seen and boiled it down to is uh, five things. So the first is being very high conviction. People who believe in themselves tend to inspire that same faith in other people. And there, there is people are looking for something to believe in, man. And when they see it in someone else, you think of Conor McGregor. It's like I, I was like, can this guy predict the future? I hope he can. That was, that was yeah. my prayer. I wanted it to be real. He's made other charisma mistakes. <laughs> yes, yes, since then. Um, <laughs> authenticity. We talked about Joe Rogan. Uh, the the trust that it that is built when somebody says something that might upset their audience is is tough to overstate. So and and that's something that I think Joe does really well. Funny people, they just make you feel good to be around. Every single stand-up comedian has a posse that wants to <laughs> wants to be near them, right? Uh, then you have the the empathetic type. I think of like Oprah Winfrey. The type mm. of person who has the capacity to just listen and absorb and reflect back to you the emotions that you have probably struggled to process yourself. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why people just would go on Oprah and just cry because she would she was just such an amazing, empathetic, understanding mirror into their world. And then finally, there's this type of person that isn't necessarily funny, but they're just so high energy and positive. It's the type of person who sees the best in everything and you and is just a joy to be around because when it's a little bit cold they remark on something else that's good <laughs> outside so it <laughs> makes it makes you like being the with cold. them exactly uh and you for, for those listening some of these might not fit you you might be like i'm not naturally positive but what you can be is authentic you know what you can be is high conviction so we've, we've tried to help people sort themselves into one of those buckets and then lean farthest into the one that fits them the best so did you, uh, when you guys were developing Charisma on Command, did you lean on like positive psychology or cognitive psychology or a particular psychological school of thought? Or was it all basically just from scratch and what you observed and then you built it based off that? Yeah, yeah. so we were doing a lot of reading. I think, you know, I think that one of the criticisms that we got that I totally understand is that we don't cite studies often. We don't have a lot of uh, that scientific literature in our videos. But what I've what I've tried to do is is include the scientific process in our understanding of this. So what we would do is go out and read positive psychology, cognitive behavioral therapy, NLP, all these sorts of things, and try them. 
in our own life. Now, these aren't controlled experiments, but we would go out, try it with ourselves, then with our friends, then with clients and people that work with us. So it was a combination of taking the suggestions for many of those books and then applying to our own life and often finding that there were nuances or that some of the things just were, uh, in my opinion, you know, fluff to sell books <laughs> that didn't work so good. Uh, and, and then we would just kind of report in our channel what we had found in our own life experimentation. Yeah, we also used to lean more on scientific studies and then a lot of social science got yeah. debunked, not all at once, but there was the idea that standing in a power pose boosts your uh, testosterone and then no one could replicate it. And so if that were something you were building your beliefs on, it just ends up getting taken away. And now, so what we were saying is, okay, forgetting, forgetting these studies that keep getting invalidated, what has worked for us and our clients and people like that. But we started out not even thinking this would ever be a career. We, before Charisma on Command existed, I think it was how many years before, bet between when we started and when we started the business, six years, Five, seven six, years, yeah. where we were wow. just trying to do this for ourselves. So at first it wasn't about anything except for consuming as much as possible, experimenting in the world and trying to improve my own life. Just trying to figure out what, how do I make my boss like me so that I'm getting the top bonus or how do I make it so that more women want to date me or my friends look up to me and respect me more. So there was this process that happened before we ever started Charisma on Command. It was very much just around helping ourselves. And then once it became at the time, the greatest thing I'd ever done for myself, that was kind of what spurred me to say, oh, this is what we should do is we should just help other people do this. Cause to, for me, it was so, it was so amazing and transformative for myself. So it was kind of six years of selfish study and then starting with Charisma on Command and getting more formulaic and actually codifying, okay, what now it's time to put this into a course or a coaching program. So let's go to what has yeah. been the most impactful stuff of all the stuff that we've done for ourselves. And I want to know actually a little bit more about making that leap and what that was like and what the naysayers said. But I also, <laughs> I also want there to hear from naysayers. you, like, I'm sure there were, I'm sure there still are, there always are. Um, but I also want to know, I'm sure that you've gotten a critique of like, well, why are you telling people to change? Why not just make mm -hmm. people feel sure. comfortable with who they are and, you know, who they're comfortable being? Maybe they're an introverted person. That's just who they are. Why change that and not just, you know, sort of preach self-acceptance? What is your response sure. to that? So, yeah, I mean, my my biggest thing is I don't think anybody has a moral obligation to try to become more charismatic. It's the people that like our stuff, I think. One, just some people like psychology and find it interesting and watch it because they find it entertaining, but the people that are trying to change, they don't like the results they're getting. And so the big thing is if you don't like the results you're getting, then you have to change something about your process. And so that could be changing your expectations for yourself, or that could be changing your goals. But if you don't want to do that, then it's changing your behavior. And I actually think people, people for some reason lump charisma in as who you are instead of thinking of it in the same way that any other skill is. So if I shoot a basketball poorly because I throw it like a soccer ball and then I change my shooting form to be a more traditional basketball form, no one would say I'm changing who I am. And in the same way, I don't think it's changing who you are to learn the body language that gets people to think you're confident and to make yourself feel more confident. And I don't think it's changing who you are to learn to pause in a story so that it's captivating because we don't tell people to lie about your stories. It's how do you tell your story? in a way that makes people fascinated by you. So I wouldn't actually say it's about changing who you are. I think it's about changing your unthinking habits that you got from modeling your parents, from what happened to you in elementary school, all the stuff that by the time you were 18, you you think it's like height or eye color, but it's not. It's really just this thing that you learned. And so it's just about learning better habits. Yeah, I think, I think one of the unfortunate things is that 
uh, truly, if if it were actionable, the best advice I believe on planet Earth is be yourself. If it were actionable, <laughs> like if if you could really sink into who you are at your core. Unfortunately, I think what most people think of as themselves is the conditioning that they received in elementary and middle school. And so they become their middle school selves for the rest of their life for fear of giving up what what that person is, what yeah. happy to them, what the you know, the bullying or the success that they had at that particular stage in their life created. Feeling scared in social situations and looking at the ground because eye contact makes you uncomfortable isn't who you are. Mm -hmm. That's just something that happened because of your upbringing. So to change that and start to work, we also work inside out. So it's all, it's about confidence internally as well as just what happens with other people. I think changing that, becoming confident and learning patterns that make you more charismatic, that's not undoing who you are. Cause I don't think slouching and having bad eye contact is who you are. Yeah. You know, I was, I feel like I could relate to a lot of that because I felt like I really developed into myself when I sort of stopped caring or trying to do anything and just sort of lean into whatever my passions are and what I'm interested in and just fill my time with stuff that I thought was fruitful and fulfilling and meaningful and purposeful. And then that other stuff just sort of blossomed as a consequence of that. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about debate, too, because obviously charisma is a big part of debating. And I've saw, I've saw you break down the uh, Sam Cedar and, and Steven Crowder recent fiasco <laughs> that went on. So I'm curious, what, generally speaking, what makes a good debater and what makes a bad debater? Well, I think the first thing you want to do is define your goal. I, I would like to think that in, in a perfect world, a good debater is someone who comes in honestly looking to get to the truth, whether or not that's the position that they started with. Hmm. But on YouTube, a good debater <laughs> is someone who makes the other person look stupid. So they're, they're two very, very different skill sets. That first skill set is about uh, listening and steel manning and uh, checking your own biases in, that this desire to be right. And being, then being willing to change your mind. Yes. So, uh, you know, that's that's what makes, you know, a wonderful person. Uh, what makes a good YouTube debater, though, is <laughs> I think you, you did a little bit of I can comment to it. Well, no, I mean, that, that it's the exact opposite. It's someone who comes in and basically they already have an audience. And so what they have to do is stick to what their audience has told them they want. And so they hold their positions very dearly and their job becomes trying to embarrass the other person. Or if they're at the weaker side of the argument, learning how to dodge when they're about to lose by changing the topic, by switching to ad hominem, things like that, such that they never have to cede ground so that their side that already believes something can walk away feeling vindicated and correct. Because mm -hmm. that's what most people unfortunately want is they want to tune in to be patted on the head and said, you are right, your side is good, the other side is stupid. And so if they watch someone on their side, quote unquote, lose or give ground or change their mind, they don't want to tune into that person anymore because it makes them self-reflect on if they're wrong or not and they don't want to be wrong. So mm. it's unfortunate, but the, the people who do it correctly have a much harder time growing in size and getting to the top because their arguments are calmer. There's no quote unquote destroying they will change their mind as they get new information. And those people will just have a harder time getting to 10 million subscribers than the person who and yeah. embarrass well, the other side. It's it's funny that you say that because, again, I have a little bit of personal experience with this. I, I mean, I don't primarily do debates, but I've done debates before. And uh, my audience loves when I do it, but I've told them a million times I don't really like doing them because, in my opinion, debates are the WWE of intellectual pursuits. And <laughs> the thing that happens is like, I'm going in there 
trying to have a real conversation and get to the truth. And then as soon as I get the sense that the person is doing what you just described, yeah. then all of a sudden I end up like snapping and sort of one-upping them at their own game. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why my audience likes it. But yeah, ultimately it's just a waste of time and people will end up backing whoever the hell they liked in the first place. That being yeah. said, do you have anybody in mind who you think is really good at the bad debating? <laughs> I don't even phrase like that. At, at the good and the bad. <laughs> the Give bad us both. Kind of debating, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, when you say bad, you mean at the at it the, works for their audience, but yes. it's not necessarily someone you would like. Precisely. Debating. That it's not a nuanced debate, but it's very effective. Well, I'll say rather than throw someone on the bus, I'll say someone I, I find quite enjoyable to watch, Christopher Hitchens. That's mm -hmm. a bit old school, but he's someone that's very, very entertaining to watch. But if you ever had to be on the other side of that conversation, you would hate him. And maybe he yeah. handles himself very differently in private. I don't actually want to assume, well, he's dead now, but I don't want to assume that he used <laughs> to be that way in private. But if he were to engage with a theist friend in private the way he did publicly, he would have no theist friends. And maybe he's totally cool with that. But that's a good example, I think, of someone who's very entertaining to watch, comes off really well, was very well liked on YouTube, but I would never suggest that someone modeled that behavior. I think, and I think the reason is that Hitchens was one, probably one of the most effective atheists at changing minds because he was debating for the audience. Mm -hmm. But when most people are interacting in a debate format, the, the potential minds to be changed are, are there, present. They're, they're engaging in the debate. And I think what Hitchens did was he made his opponents look and feel stupid often. And that no matter how right you are, you have just backed someone into a corner where now they can absolutely not under any circumstances change their mind because that would make them stupid. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I've I've watched some people and I don't want to say like I've enjoyed watching some of Destiny. I don't know all of his takes, but I think that he uh, I don't even know if it's from a charisma perspective. He's pretty clear in his explanations and thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't I don't know if he engages in bad faith because I've only watched. I don't know. 30 minutes to an hour of, of his stuff. Uh, yeah. And, and I think, you know, we're all human and I, I, I here's what I'll say. Everybody that I've ever witnessed, uh, for a long enough time will eventually engage in bad faith when their back is up against the wall. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and I'm absolutely in that camp. So, uh, it's just about trying to do it a little bit less and to lower that ego defense a little bit and open yourself to have your mind changed. Well, I think the best thing you can do, and again, I do this, I'm not saying I don't do this, but the, the best thing that I think someone can do is try not to tie your identity to any particular belief because it's really hard to change your identity. So if you say I'm a diehard Democrat or Republican, then you will have an unthinking subconscious implicit bias to accept anything that side says uncritically because you've aligned yourself with them versus what's hard is to say I'm a person and I have different beliefs on each issue and I'm not in 100% agreement with any of these people. And so when a new issue comes up, I'm going to listen to them both and try to figure out who I think is right. But I don't automatically always think that Democrats are dumb. I don't automatically always think Republicans are dumb because if you do, if you say every person of certain party is dumb, then any idea that comes from them is dumb. Yeah, and so now you, you can't have an open mind. And so uh, ironically, you, you just become an unthinking, <laughs> an unthinking person who doesn't right. have sound reasoning for everything you well, believe And that's how so you strongly. end up with this very like, I mean, sectarian tribal environment you have where even mm -hmm. something like wearing a mask in a pandemic becomes yeah. part of an identity, right? I mean, that's where things really got into trouble is that people's approach to the pandemic and the like personal safety precautions they were taking or weren't taking 
they attach that to their identity. So I think it's actually very profound what you say about you're saying basically like be very careful about what you incorporate as your identity versus just this is my belief, which beliefs beliefs are easy to change when it's like who you are. That's a lot more difficult to move off of. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's a natural I think there's a natural evolutionary reason for this, which is we want tribes. We want an in-group and an out-group. It makes us feel safe to have people that are on our side and it makes us feel strong to have an enemy to hate. And so when you go this route of I'm not going to identify with this side or this side, what you need is a group of people that are similar to you because you will feel alone without a tribe and you'll you'll feel weak and you won't have quote unquote allies. And so I think it's predictable if you understand the human brain that these this is how things are going because it's not about fully understanding how a virus works. It's about having a tribe that you strongly align with that you can count on that makes you feel like you have allies, basically. Yeah, and you know, another issue is I, I feel like the thing that annoys me the most is when people don't start by assuming good intent and motivations on, on the other person's side, you know, because most people genuinely truly believe whatever it is that they're saying and if you're not starting with that as your default then you know you're basically assuming that everybody has bad intent and everybody's a grifter and everybody's malicious and everybody's you know acting out, out of bad faith and if you just start with assuming good intent until proven otherwise then i think what people end up finding is that you'll be able to even if you disagree with somebody totally it's fine to disagree with them totally. What's not fine is to think there's some sort of malicious, you know, Cretan who's has, you know, bad intent and their ulterior motives. Yeah, totally, totally. And I think that that is a great point and and often hard to do because assuming good intent puts you in a vulnerable position sometimes, you know? You you <laughs> I was telling Ben yeah, before yeah, we yeah, hopped on. I was like, dude, I hope we don't get ambushed here. Like I'm gonna go <laughs> on. But God, <laughs> you're gonna say, pull up a photo of me in high school with acne like, is this you? <laughs> we would be the last people <laughs> to do and, that. And I've and I've watched I've watched hilarious. your stuff and I've and I've seen you guys on Joe Rogan. I've seen your own stuff. I've seen uh, with Sagar too. And so I was like, okay, I feel a little bit more comfortable. <laughs> yeah, we would definitely be the last people to do that just look up kyle's old twitter and you'll know oh jesus you're, you're I'm, very safe i am i'm um, the glassiest of glass houses <laughs> i cannot cast stones at anybody i assure you <laughs> um i do want to know uh either one of you jump in on this talk to me about the moment when you decided like okay this isn't just going to be a side project we're leaving our fancy corporate careers we're making this our life i think you said you moved to brazil i mean you went all in on focusing on charisma and command what was that decision point like? What was scary about it? Um, and what were the sort of, you, you alluded there were a lot of naysayers. Tell us about that part as well. Sure. Well, there were two There were two points. One was just, we're going to leave the corporate gig and do anything. And the second was, we're going to do charisma. And they were actually two pretty distinct phases. So I guess I can talk about the do anything, and then you talk about the charisma, because that's kind of how it happened. Was I found a book called The 4-Hour Workweek. I read it. I thought it was amazing. Charlie and I have learned that we are much more effective at changing each other's minds if we just give each other the book than if we try to do the <laughs> persuasion. So I just said, hey, just read this book and then we're gonna talk about how we're gonna quit our jobs. Charlie read it, found it compelling. And so there was a sense of basically, I don't wanna work, I don't wanna give up all of these years in the middle of my life to retire at an old age, given that I don't really like finance. And so that was a very easy sell for me. I don't know exactly why, but it was just obvious that the right thing was to quit the job, move to Brazil and figure it out. And so, 
I started telling people I was going to do that before we ever had a charisma on command. We actually started our first business with selling parkour educational DVDs, trying to teach people how to run up walls. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it didn't work out because we don't know how to do that. And we have no passion <laughs> towards it. But, uh, but no, we were very much just like, we're going to do this. We're going to start this. And so we did. We hired an instructor and I'll, I'll save you the story. But basically, it was very, very obvious we were going to move abroad somewhere we wanted to live on the beach, have this lifestyle we wanted. And then separately, it was, OK, well, what are we going to do? And so parkour didn't work out. And then, Charlie, you were the one that kind of said, let's try charisma. Yeah, the, the charisma piece came in because my some people and I respect it can work hard at something that doesn't inspire them. And I actually there's no knock to that. I, I think it's it's admirable in a lot of ways. I don't I've never possessed that trait. I can only focus for extended period of times on things that I find genuinely compelling. So I said the only business Ben, that I could possibly do is one that we are already spending our time doing. And we were five years in at that point. We were calling each other all the time, talking about what had happened in the workplace, what had happened on this date, what had happened with this friend. And that was when we said, look, I don't, I don't see the market here, but <laughs> we got to, this, this is the only thing that could possibly work. Uh, and so, yeah, there was a lot of naysayers and, uh, it's always the people closest to you. It's always the people closest to you who both love you and fear you growing away from them mm -hmm. that are, that are frightened. Um, but they've, uh, nothing, nothing shuts them up like success. And I don't mean, <laughs> I don't mean that meanly like they've, they've all, they've all come around and are now very supportive, which is great. Well, not all, but a lot. Most all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So if you were going to give folks listening, watching, et cetera, first of all, they should subscribe to Charisma on Command. Also, Charlie and Ben podcast. Charlie and Ben podcast. Oh, Check <laughs> out all of what you guys are up to because, I mean, the content is genuinely good. It's genuinely useful. Um, it always makes me think. It's, it's really, it always makes me stop and think. I'm like, huh, right. that's a good point. I never thought of that. Well, before. and it's certainly useful for people in our line of work, but it's also really useful for people just in the regular course of the world and how they interact with other human beings. And also, I think, for me, helping me understand why human beings act in the ways that they do sometimes, too. So everybody mm -hmm. should do that. But if you had just, like, one piece of advice for people to help them boost their level of charisma, boost their level of confidence, what's kind of, like, the starter level of advice that you would give to folks? Yeah. Watch uh, Charisma on Command. <laughs> there you go. Like. Like, comment, subscribe. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. The uh, we ha we have a digital course, and uh, we've we've purposely laid it out so that I think the first thing is the thing that I would tell most people. And so the first day focuses on uh, how you greet people, and mm -hmm. the the easiest piece of advice that I can give that you can use today is when somebody asks you how you're doing, be better than good, be excellent, amazing, ecstatic, fine. And and if that is at all difficult for you to feel. You can prime yourself beforehand. You can watch a video that makes you feel good. You can focus on the things that make you feel good. Uh, no need to lie here, but but gas yourself up a bit so that when you do interact with whoever it is, whether it's the cashier or someone you already know, that you find a way to be better than good. And it has a it has a way of taking that momentum into the conversation, making it so much more fun for for everybody involved. That's so, yeah, uh, my final question. It's it's a super embarrassing one for me. Um, but I genuinely consider you guys like charisma experts. So my question for you is, how the hell did I get almost a million subscribers? <laughs> what, what did I do right that got me here? That's a good one. I'll have to do a breakdown and find out. Uh, no, I don't know that you're not. I, I, I haven't. I, I, it's, it's, uh, here's what I can say. I, I asked that question of people like Justin Bieber, like, why is he so famous? And I asked that question of Donald Trump, and I said, why is he so famous? And the thing that I have learned is that Reality is the master, not your 
perception of it. So if your perception of yourself is of somebody that oughtn't have a million subscribers, that just means that your model of the world is a little bit tweaked. You've clearly done something right. And my job, if I were to do a break bit down, would be to figure it out. So I, I haven't gone in and looked deeply. And like I said, I'd have to rewatch clips and clips and clips to do it. But you know, you're not here by mistake. That that's what I would say. Is is that 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 doesn't happen? You heard the guys. I'm phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> See, and there he is. He, and you took the advice right away. He's phenomenal. <laughs> phenomenal. Um, guys, thank you so much. Really super insightful. Uh, super grateful for your time. Thank you. Yeah, it was awesome. a pleasure. Thank you, Crystal Kyle. It was awesome talking to you guys. Yeah, our pleasure. Take care, guys. It was awesome. So there you have it, uh, Charlie and Ben. Really interesting guys, Fun. huh? I liked it. Yeah. Um, you know, let me take a stab at answering the your question of like, why did this work for me? How did I get almost a million subs? Oh, okay. Based on their framework, because mm -hmm. they went through like, you know, the seven different ways that you can be charismatic. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you have elements of a lot of different ones of them. So I don't want you to think because I'm not saying some of them that they're totally off. To the be table, honest with but... you, I don't even remember one of them. Okay. So it wouldn't right. even I wouldn't know which one is missing. Offended. OK, <laughs> so um, two that they mentioned was authenticity and standing for something. Mm. And to me, like, those are very clear traits that you have. They also mentioned, and I thought this was an interesting and important one, too, willingness to say something that your audience might not like, which I think is something that you're willing to do as well, because you do stand for something. You have a principle. You try to be consistent in how you apply it. And sometimes, you know, if that means supporting Joe Biden, maybe the audience doesn't love that or there's at least a danger that the audience isn't going to love that. But the fact that you're willing to do that and be honest with them, I think, is part of why people find you so compelling. Well, thank you. You're I welcome. appreciate that. Now, well, that's let me, my answer. Now, let me look up the ones that I am not. <laughs> Seven things that are lead to I don't. I, those honestly, are the two that, popped, that jumped down. OK, those like, are the two that you think are dominant. Yeah, I would gotcha. say so. I would say so. Yeah. Uh, but I am curious about the rest of them. They're, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, these are really interesting guys, and they have a really interesting philosophy. And based on everything I've seen of them, they are they are like charisma experts. They might downplay it a little bit and be like, no, nah, I mean, not really. And we base it on reading some stuff, but we don't. it's not as scientific as some might like it to be, blah, blah, blah. No, you go watch their videos, and you decide for yourself how scientific it is and how intelligent it is. And I mean, the fact that they called Trump and over Biden, Hillary and, and Biden. Biden over Trump— um, They're on to something. Right. But especially the Trump over Hillary one, because that one was way out on a limb. And it was early, too. Oh, that's what I was going to say, is he did it way earlier than any of I yeah. always thought he could win. But I also said, he when he said, by the end, I thought I, yeah. I was the same. By the end, I was like, I was Hillary's going to win. I had her winning by a smaller margin than most. But I thought she would pull it out too. Yeah, right. I mean, he was just too ridiculous. Right? But I always, I always thought he could win. The, yeah, the realm of possibility. But um, yeah, especially after the like grabber by the p word thing and all of that. Grabber by the p word. Yeah. What are we on PBS? You can <laughs> I don't say like it. To Pussy. Say it. <laughs> <laughs> that the word is not nearly as gross as chunks, which you threw at me in another podcast. <laughs> anyway, um, trying to get me to be lewd here. Anyway, I uh, definitely think that they get a lot of cred for the fact that they called Trump over Hillary and, so early. And let me just say, they're not even really political guys. They're very like 
Yeah. They're very, very apolitical to the extent that anybody can be apolitical, because you could argue there's no such thing as apolitical. Mm -hmm. But, like, to the extent anybody can be, they are. They'll tell you their opinion on stuff. But it really, every like, it, it's all over the place. Like, sometimes they'll give an opinion and it's right-leaning. Sometimes they'll give an opinion and it's left-leaning. Yeah. But they're very, they're honest and they're interesting, which is why I like them. Because you, know? you listen to the podcast. The podcast has more of that sort of, like, their opinions on the podcast is them just the talking like about whatever. Here, I'll let me read you some of the headlines from the from recent ones. Um, Parent-child abuse that isn't really talked about. The New York Times wrote an article that totally missed the point, and I think this is about Jordan Peterson because there's a picture of Peterson in the thumbnail. Mm. Um, how to stop replaying past cringe interactions. The biggest lie movies tell you about love. How Jake Paul improved his discipline. <laughs> like, this, it's just all over the I'd place. I'd be interested to know what they have to say about Jordan Peterson. Um... Yeah, I've, I don't, I've seen maybe some of their things on him, but not much, so I don't know. I, you know, my line on Peterson has always been that he's, uh, he's his politics, I think, are terrible. I really don't think he's, I mean, he's even, like, denied climate change and stuff, which is, like, really, dude? It, it's astounding what, to hear him say that, because you listen to him, him riff on psychology, and you're like, oh, this guy's smart, and he's, you know, pulling in from all these different authors and all these different theorists and but then when he starts going on politics is bad but that's always what i've said is that he's very he's a very good at like psychological stuff and self-help stuff and i have no doubt he gives young men discipline who need the discipline mm -hmm. you know but yeah. his politics are also just not great and what, so what did you think of the uh the destiny take on oh, the uh, debate me bro no of the conversation listen i mean everybody knows my history with destiny and the fact that uh I did one stream with him. It was me, him, and Hassan, and we disagreed a little bit on outsourcing and free trade, but I thought it was all fun and fair and in good faith and everything. But then slowly but surely after that, he started randomly taking really like over-the-top vicious shots at me on his stream. And the way I found out about it is I was watching his stuff, and he just happened to take the shots at me. Huh. And it is a very weird experience when you like a creator and you watch a creator, and then all of a sudden they're really like viciously coming after you. Because huh. I never said anything or did anything that was ever, you know negative in any way shape or form with him and so i gotta be honest that that's one that's the first thing that really was a hint to me like i need to not develop close relationships in this field and i need to not get too close to people in this field because that it hurt i didn't like it i didn't like it at all yeah and then obviously the second lesson i need not bring up but that led <laughs> me to the point of like i literally don't i used to only read like the verified mentions. I went from reading all the mentions on Twitter to just the verified mentions. Now I literally don't read any responses. Yeah. Because it's, you know, it gets to the point where I think Destiny is very, very good at debating. And I think he's a phenomenal communicator. He's off the charts with that X Factor thing that I talked mm. about, where you just, every time he talks, you just hear immediately what he's saying. It gets right in your brain. Um, but my personal experience with him, he's also just a very difficult person. And by no stretch of the imagination does he steal man other people's arguments. Mm. And does he, like, listen and want to respond to what you're actually saying? He'll hear something, and if he doesn't like you as a person, he'll interpret it in the most bad faith way possible. Mm. And so that was my experience with him. But he's not wrong when, when um, he said, you know, he's a really interesting and, like— Compelling. Compelling talker, yeah, and good at that debate stuff. There's no doubt about that, of course. Yeah, yeah, I also thought it was interesting uh, what they were saying about if you want a lot of people to love you, you also are going to need a lot of people to hate you. Like that basically one of the elements of charisma can be being that very polarizing figure. Right. And that's what Trump. You certainly see that with, with Trump. And 
But it's weird. I feel like uh, there's a symmetry between the political parties in understanding that. Uh, Republicans are really way more willing to lean into that polarizing yeah. character mm -hmm. than Democrats are. Democrats tend to like want to have a consensus and want everybody to like them, et cetera, et cetera, which I relate to because I'm kind of that personality type also where I want everybody to like me. But um, I thought that was an interesting insight as well. That is an interesting insight. My approach to that have always, has always been you just don't think about it. You can't think about it. Right. You just That's got to be a secondary, ancillary thing that happens. Well, that's part of why I think you don't read the replies anymore because then you just, you know, it is what it is. And, right, yeah. And then you can... You don't have to hedge when you say something with all of this chorus of imaginary responses in your head. I'll hedge if I think there's a good reason to hedge. I will not hedge if some asshole who I think is 100% wrong is prodding me and haranguing me to hedge. And yeah, I don't want to know the thing that I think is an unreasonable criticism. And let me be clear, uh, do I miss some reasonable criticisms by not reading this stuff? Sure. But in mm -hmm. my experience, it's like 90-10. Yeah. Well, there's one for every 10 that's like, that's a fair point. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. Everybody, listen, everybody, it's not just me. Everybody knows what social media has done to people, you know? Everybody understands it. Yeah. Social media has made us all very, more tribal, more vicious, more insular. It's like, it's, it's the opposite of what it's like back in the day when you have friends and you have family and you go out in public and you meet people and you talk to people and you mingle with them and you're at the water cooler with them. It's the polar opposite. And so... If, if that thing brings you pain, anxiety, negative emotions, you don't fucking need that in your life. Just it. cut it out. Especially because be the solution is the simplest fucking thing in the world. Yeah. Just cut it out. And I know it's possible because I've done it. <laughs> and then immediately you're like, oh, I'm really happy. Now. I feel great. Yeah. Yeah. And, there, you know, there are poor people out there who torture themselves. There are some people who don't even realize that's an option. Right. There are some people who don't even realize, like, all I have to do is just not read this and do positive things that I enjoy, and then I'm, I'm fine. I'm great. It can be, it can feel so important when you're like caught up in these. Right. But that's the thing is nobody cares and you're fine. You yeah. know, like nobody cares and you're fine. This it's okay. This is actually <laughs> a big part of why I like living in this little small town where I'm from in King George County, Virginia, is because it is the best reality check ever. When, you know, you go to the grocery store and there's somebody there you grew up with from high school and you're like, Whatever Twitter stupid thing was happening that I was all worked up about today, they don't know or care about it at all. It matters so incredibly little, and I love having that reality check. What's that famous Eleanor Roosevelt quote? You'd stop caring or you stop worrying about how much people um, think about you when you realize how little they do. It's something to that effect. Mm. Like, yeah, you don't need to dwell on it. You don't need to have it in your mind. You just go about your day, do your thing, and you'll be fine. Yeah. So anyway, great, great conversation, really interesting insights. Um, I do definitely recommend their content. I mean, the videos are just interesting. Whether you're actively looking to, like, build your confidence or build your X factor or any of that, or just curious about what is it about this person that people so respond to? What is it about Donald Trump that people really gravitated towards? What is it about Hillary Clinton that people really anti-gravitated away from, you know? So um, really interesting stuff that they're putting out there into the world. Yeah. Um, so everybody check out their stuff. Charisma on Command is uh, the name of their, like, official 
channel where they do exactly what Crystal just described. They break down, you know, why certain people are charismatic, what are the qualities, how they go about it. Uh, and then also the Charlie and Ben podcast is, is really good too. And it's really interesting. That's where I was reading the titles. Uh, that's where I was reading the titles from before. Um, so yeah, it was a great episode. Guys, if you enjoy the show, uh, you can subscribe on Substack, $5 a month gets you the video of the show and it gets it to you a day early. Um, if you want to wait till Saturday, it comes out for free for everybody in audio form, audio podcast form on Saturday. So uh, thank you so much for everybody who does pay the $5 and, and watches the video. We really appreciate you and we love you. And remember, we take no money from any advertisers for, for this show and we never will. And, you know, when we built this, we said, let's do it the right way. Let's do it just small dollar donors. It's not about the money. We don't care how much money we make. But, you know, this is something that's a little, little more pure than any other way for secular talk and for breaking points. I mean, I'm yeah. proud of the model for secular talk and I'm proud of your model for breaking mm -hmm. points. But I do also feel like this is even another level. graduated level yeah. of like, it's literally Three, no ads. That's whatsoever. it. It's only the $5 a month that you guys pay as a tip to get the video a day early. So yep. if you support what we do here, if you support independent media, we'd really appreciate um, your support for the show. So, and again, thank you to everybody who does that. It means the world. Yeah, it truly does. We love you guys and I uh, hope you have a great weekend and we will see you here next week.